BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We've got a lot to talk about today. I want to start out uh, with the time for Democrats to wake up on free trade or pay the price in 2024. It's going to be real problematic if Democrats continue to ignore the American working class's increasing hatred of neoliberal policies, particularly so-called free trade. They're going to get buried by it in the next elections. And also, Newt Gingrich is going to drop by. I'm going to ask him why he went after Clinton having a BJ when he was in the midst of an extramarital affair himself. That should be interesting. And it looks like China's President Xi is embracing Alexander Hamilton's plan and what that means. Also this hour, I want to get into how Big Pharma has spent $1.2 million so far on Kirsten Cinema just since September. So I guess now we know her price to sell out America's seniors. Also, Josh Hawley is testing social issues like porn and masculinity to run on. I'll tell you about that and why he's doing it. But I want to start with today's op-ed that I published over at HartmanReport.com this morning. It's titled, Time for Democrats to Wake Up on Free Trade or Pay in 2024. And, you know, I start out by pointing out, and, and I, I did an extended rant about this last week and published a piece over at Hartman Report about it, that basically we have... We're at the tail end of a 40-year period of a giant economic and political experiment called neoliberalism. Most people don't even know the name of it, but that's, that's what it's referred to as. Uh, that name was hatched at a Mont Pelerin Society meeting in 1947 by Hayek, Mises, and Friedman, Milton Friedman. The new liberalism, the neoliberalism. And, you know, its primary tenants are low taxes on rich people, privatization of government functions, and of course, you know, I've ranted at length about both of those things in the past, and free trade. Let corporations, let the, let the wealthy, let giant corporations basically run the world economy because the so-called free market has this magical invisible hand and it makes all things wonderful. So we bought into this, you know, Maggie Thatcher came to, came to power in the United Kingdom, I think it was 79 on this stuff, and, and Ronald Reagan in 1981 in the United States, and, and uh, they both embraced it. Now the United States and the UK, uh, you know, our, our working classes, uh, our middle classes in both countries are, are damaged badly, at least in the UK. They still have free health insurance or free health care, uh, but not here. And of those three pillars, free trade is really the most explosive. And, I, and what I wanted to share with you is what Josh Hawley is up to. You know, the Republican field for 2024, uh, there's quite a few people in it. And if Trump makes it all the way through to 2024 and runs for president, then the battle right now is for who's going to be his VP. If not, and I'm skeptical that he's actually running for president, I think that he's, he's trying to raise as much money as he can because he's deeply in the hole. Commercial real estate right now is in big trouble, and that's where his money is, and people are running away from the Trump brand, and, and he's got all these legal expenses and things. I, I'm averaging six, eight, ten, sometimes ten fundraising emails. I got three of them this morning just in the hour before we went on the air from Donald Trump begging for money. He is... I mean, literally, he's got to be hitting, he's got to be going after the Alzheimer's vote at this point. You know, people who don't remember that just 10 minutes earlier, they gave him 50 bucks. 
He's just draining the checking accounts of people. But in any case, the, the, the field, the non-Trump field, is starting to form. Ron DeSantis is polling ahead of everybody, but, but I think Josh Hawley, frankly, is the most serious candidate. He published, uh, actually, a, a pretty good book on how big tech is snooping on all of us. Uh, last year, came out with this book. It's, it's very partisan. I mean, you know, he's constantly attacking Democrats in it, but it, it's actually a thoughtful book. He's a smart guy and a lawyer. And, and now he published this piece in the New York Times last week, or maybe the week before, I, I forget which, but in the last two weeks. And I just want to share with you a few, a few excerpts from Josh Hawley's piece. Now, keep in mind, what he's saying here is something that no Republican has said since 1979. Since Reagan in 1980 in the primaries in the late 79 and in the primaries in 1980 made voodoo economics acceptable. And frankly, very few Democrats have been saying since 1992 when Bill Clinton bought into this. But it is the stuff that Bernie Sanders has been saying all along, that Sherrod Brown has been saying all along, that Congressman Mark Pocan has been saying all along. So here's what Josh Hawley had to say in the New York Times. He said the problems have been brewing for decades. He's talking about trade. And he's right, by the way. It was, it was Reagan who renegotiated the GATT treaty that set up the WTO. It was Reagan and Bush who negotiated NAFTA, even though Clinton signed it. So now, Hawley says in the next sentence, as he turns his back on Reagan in this New York Times piece, he said, now we must change course. We can rebuild what made this nation great in the first place by making things in America again. Now, you will recall this was at the core of Donald Trump's campaign, both his primary in 2015. It was, the one, it was one of about two or three topics, but it, I, I think it was the number one topic that Trump used to pound during the primaries in 2015 and early 2016, the Republican primaries. Trump pounded on this, and there was not one single Republican who would defend him. All the other Republicans are like, oh, no, free trade. We need free trade. It's all good stuff. And Trump is like, no, no, it's killing the American worker. And all across, particularly the Rust Belt, the old industrial Midwest, and across the South, people were going, what? Democrats voting for Trump. Yeah, bring back our damn jobs. So here, Josh Hawley is stepping into this space. It's a wide open space because most Republicans are pro-free trade. Most Democrats are pro-free trade. And here's Josh Hawley. He says, whether it be personal protective equipment, pharmaceutical drugs, or semiconductors, the coronavirus pandemic has exposed a hard truth. The United States, the strongest country in the world, cannot produce an adequate supply of the critical goods it needs. He points out in the op-ed as well that, you know, these so-called supply chain problems all has to do with this stuff. He continues in his New York Times piece. Again, this is the guy who wants to be the first fascist president of the United States, Josh Hawley. He said the failure of the nation's productive capacity to keep up with its needs was not inevitable. And he's absolutely right. He goes on to say it was a choice over the last 30 years. See, this all started with Reagan. He's not going to say it. He's a Republican. But it started with, anyhow, over the last, actually, I guess he's trying to identify it as starting with Clinton. Uh, in 92, that was when, or 93 was when he signed NAFTA. But, you know, it really goes back a decade before that. Anyhow, he says it was a choice. Over the past 30 years, experts and politicians in Washington from both parties helped build a global economic system that prioritized the free flow of capital over the wages of American workers and the free flow of goods over the resiliency of our nation's supply chains. We liberalized and expanded trade relations with China under the delusion that it could be influenced into becoming a peace-loving democracy. And he's absolutely right. Thomas Friedman was out there selling this stuff with his book, The Lexus and the Olive Tree, remember that? And his idea, his McDonald's theory, that no two nations with McDonald's have ever, ever gone to war, that, by the way, has been blown up. It was a colossal idiocy at the time. It still is. So Hawley continues, he says, the consequences of these bad policies have been disastrous. They've created trade patterns that have helped multinational corporations boost their profits by exploiting cheap labor abroad and offshoring America's industrial commons and the capabilities of its manufacturing sector. As a result, thousands of factories have shuttered. 
Millions of jobs have been shipped overseas, and the economic security of the United States is now more vulnerable to unpredictable crises like global pandemics, and America is dangerously dependent on the productive capacity of China, our chief adversary. These policies were sold to us as a path to greater wealth, but they've made us weaker and more vulnerable. Josh Hawley is absolutely right. And that's the thing, you know, when a politician is actually telling people the truth, and in this case, you know, he's overlooking the inconvenient part of it, which is that it was the Republican Party that first pioneered this. But yeah, the Democratic Party jumped in with both feet as well in 1992. And it's only been the progressives. It's been, you know, by and large, the con progressive congressional caucus has been the one group of, of politicians in Washington, D.C., who have largely and consistently fought against so-called free trade policies. And it helps get them elected. And Josh Hawley is, basically, this is the opening shot in the 2024 presidential race. Now, Hawley is also testing other things. There's another story, there's a great summary of it over at Daily Coast today, about how he just, uh, just this week came out and basically said, you're not a manly man, you know, if you don't have children or if you watch pornography. He's testing what social issues will be next. You, you'll recall, it was about a year ago that they started testing the whole critical race theory hysteria. Among a, a dozen other topics, they went after bathrooms, they went after trans kids, they went, you know, they went after uh, the Mr. Potato Head. You know, the Republicans constantly have to have outrage. It's the thing that drives their machine. And so Hawley, in addition to proposing, uh, here's how we're going to go forward and make America stronger and more secure, which is, you know, end so-called free trade. He's also got to come up with his social issues, and so he's testing them. He's going to continue doing that over the next year and a half, two years. He's going to be throwing stuff out. Right now it's porn and, and not having children. Next week it'll be something else, you know. He's, he, until he finds the topic that he thinks will have the, enough staying power that they can make it go big in 2024, the social issue. Because they've got to have, you know, the, the, typically with Republicans, the serious policy issue is tax cuts. And the social issue is whatever the social issue is du jour. Right? I mean, you can, you can remember this from George Herbert Walker Bush going after Michael Dukakis for letting uh, uh, Willie Horton out of prison, when in fact it was the previous Republican governor's program that did it. But hey, you know, you got to have outrage. So anyhow, I'm telling Democrats, it's time to wake the hell up. This is coming. This is a train coming for you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And if the Democratic Party doesn't figure this out and start repudiating free trade policy and start having a conversation about what do we do, how do we bring our jobs back, it's going to be in big trouble. Dennis in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, what's up? Yeah, well, there's another part of Howie's message that's totally missing, and that is if you bring back all these manufacturing jobs, is the minimum wage going to go up? He's against that. The jobs. overall wages will probably go up because manufacturing is the kind of industry that lends toward unionization. You know, well, people, that's true. People sit around and talk to each other while they're building things as opposed to you know, talking to customers, you know, do you want fries with that? Right. I mean, I, I, but but that's the thing. I mean, labor, I guess there's a comeback right now with labor, but let's face it, Reagan uh, waged his war successfully on labor unions. But see, the Republican Party ago. is now embracing labor unions. I mean, that's the thing. Mm. It's like it, everything's being flipped upside down. Right now, you've got the Republican Party. They're the biggest supporters, of course, of police unions. But they're also, you know, they're, they're broadly starting to pick individual unions that they like, like steelworkers. You know, when the steelworkers were saying, uh, hey, we want the, we want the uh, oil pipelines because we're the guys who build the pipelines. It's more jobs for us. Who was defending them? The Republican Party. Well, I hope that they would defend those, those making solar panels or bicycles. I think, or I think they may cars. well do it. They're, they're, no, they're, no, they're not dummies, uh, Dennis. They're not dummies. I mean, yeah. these guys know which way the winds blow, blows. And, yeah. and, you know, and their commitment to free trade has just evaporated. 
I know, but but they they seem to they seem to fall back to the level of being pro corporate ownership as opposed to workers. Well, of course. And uh, yeah, and and here's the other thing too is how many people actually want to have these types of jobs. Now, if you're working under, you know, the Japanese uh, man- uh, Z management style, there's going to be 20 things to do at a factory, not just one. But how many of these factories, it's just one person doing a repetitive thing, eight hours, and, you know, that's for the the high school dropout, so to speak. Uh, GM most don't want to have those jobs. GM just negotiated, well, just, it was two or three years ago, negotiated a new contract with the United Auto Workers. And mm-hmm. the starting pay is fourteen fifty an hour. And every time they've got a job opening, they've got a, a line of people standing in line to try to get that job. Because it's not just fourteen fifty an hour, it's fourteen fifty an hour plus you get benefits. You get health insurance mm-hmm. and you get other things. Um, but it's a hot, hell of a lot less than the forty bucks an hour it used to be. But I'm telling you, uh, all across America, there are manufacturing jobs where people are that don't pay, you know, like they used to. It's these are not tickets to the middle class, no. but they're but they're tickets to a comfortable lower middle class life, as it were. Right. You know, and they and they provide if, some stability yeah. and and security. And there are people lining up to get those jobs. Yeah, and in Amazon, at an Amazon warehouse, the turnover rate is outrageous as it is in the fast food industry. Well, that's, Amazon so, is actually pushing that and and you know there's a there was a really really thoughtful piece in the Financial Times about 3 months ago about how Amazon is having a huge internal debate in management about whether that churn is a good thing or not. They thought it was a good thing originally because it would reduce the probability of union, mm-hmm. unionization. Now they're starting to think that the costs associated with the churn are so great that maybe the union would actually be cheaper. Well, they're they're learning the lesson of IBM and Hewlett-Packard back in the 50s and 60s. Exactly. Pay your workers so well that they're not going to want to have a union in the first place. Actually, Trader Joe's kind of does the same thing. Yep, there you go. Dennis, thank you. Thank you for the call. And thanks for watching us on YouTube. Back with Newt Gingrich after this. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Congressman, it's Tom Harbin. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're talking with former Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, Republican from Georgia, Newt Gingrich, co-author of The Contract with America, the former 2012 presidential candidate, Fox News contributor, and author of 41 books, including his latest, just came out, Beyond Biden, Rebuilding the America We Love, his website, Gingrich360.com, and of course, you can tweet him at Newt Gingrich. Congressman, you've been pushing tax cuts on the rich forever. It was at the core of your contract on America. And the result seems to have been huge budget deficits and massive inequality. Are you ready to acknowledge that the economy worked better for Republican voters during the 1940 to 1980 era, when the top tax rate was between 91 and 74 percent? I don't know. I don't know where you got that. I think that's we, not. we had, you know, when Reagan came I mean, in, I mean, office, I mean, there was an $800 billion budget deficit. We were not even at $1 trillion. He took it from $800 billion to $2.4 trillion, and it's been on an upward tra- trajectory ever since. Well, I mean, first of all, it hasn't been an upward trajectory ever since, because when I was Speaker, we balanced the budget for four straight years. So, I mean, the whole premise of what you just asked me doesn't reflect my career at all. 
uh, we actually were paying down the national debt, and we actually had uh, Alan Greenspan, who was then the chairman of the Federal Reserve, testified that at the rate we were paying down the national debt, if it continued, he wasn't sure how the Fed would manage the money supply because there wouldn't be any U.S. bonds to sell. So in the period when I was speaker, we cut the, the capital gains tax. We had an explosive growth rate. Uh, we increased revenue dramatically. We reformed welfare. People went to work. More children came out of poverty during that period than any time in American history. Uh, their parents went to work. They earned an income. They were beginning to rise. Uh, and as I said, uh, the budget was balanced for four straight years. So, I mean, in, in my career, I'm not going to try to defend other things, but in my career, what you just said is just factually wrong. Well, the economy was growing, absolutely. And growing economies generate more tax revenue. And yes, we, you know, we've had two Democratic presidents since Reagan who have balanced budgets and no Republican presidents that have done so. But then George W. Bush came along and did another Gingrich-style massive tax cut, and boom, you know, the, the, the deficit exploded again. Well, I mean, first of all, if you... <laughs> but but it's a point, you, you, just, you just skip back past the whole point that when I was speaker, we balanced the budget for four straight years. We were paying off the national debt, not increasing the national debt. So I, I can't, I'm not going to try to defend George W. Bush's spending patterns. I think it was a mistake to go away from a balanced budget. I think we ought to go back to a balanced budget now. Okay. I think, it's, I think, I think we need the discipline of a balanced budget. I think that we also need to have some kind of, of uh, looking seriously at the level of corruption involved. When, you know, when you have $32 billion stolen from the California Unemployment Fund, mostly by criminals in California prisons who are using the prison computer systems. There's something profoundly wrong with the whole system. So I'm, I'm for tightening up everything. I'm for taking the Pentagon and turning it into a triangle because you shouldn't, you don't need 31,000 people sitting in that building which was designed for people who are using manual typewriters. So are you saying paper. that you think we should roll back the Trump tax cuts, too? No, I think I'd leave. I look, I'm for lower taxes because I'm for more freedom and more money in your pocket. Okay. But I'm also for a smaller government and for cutting out the waste and cutting out the corruption and getting back to a balanced budget. You have, you know, throughout the years that you were in, in Congress, repeatedly pointed out that it's destructive to people to give them free money, uh, whether it's free housing or free food or, you know, any kind of welfare payments uh, generally, particularly over a long period of time, and particularly enough money that they never have to work again. Uh, it, please, you know, correct me if I've mischaracterized that. Is that, is that the case? Yeah, it's actually a paraphrase of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's 1935 State of the Union speech, where Roosevelt says, uh, welfare ultimately undermines and debilitates the entire society and that we should be very careful not to uh, create a system of permanent welfare. So in that sense, I'm, I'm quoting the greatest Democratic president of the 20th century uh, who, uh, who understood culturally that if you create a dependency class, that it is very, very dangerous, and it's very bad for the people who end up on welfare. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you and Franklin Roosevelt. And, and in fact, it would be even worse if those people who are now you know, damaged and lazy as a consequence of getting all this free money had considerable power in society as well. Um, therefore, shouldn't we tax inheritances at 100% so that we don't create a whole class of trust fund babies who now not only are damaged and, and you know, lazy, but also have considerable political power because of their wealth? Well, I mean, I, th I find your premise fascinating. Why, why do you think it's your right to say to a parent or a grandparent who's worked their whole lifetime, we're not going to allow you to take care of your family. We're going to take all of your money away for the government. Because, I mean, I don't, because I don't you just the, told me that it would government. be a bad thing to do to your, to, to your children. Well, uh, but I also think it's a very bad thing to have government think that it's their money, that they didn't earn the money. Uh, the government, I mean, I, so I you're don't saying that, that government, government money makes people lazy, but daddy's money doesn't? I think that it depends on how smart daddy is. I know a lot of successful people who put their kids on allowances and make them work for it. Uh, I don't, I don't, you know, but, but I'm also raising a deeper point, which is why do you think it's your money? Why do you think it's your right to say to a parent or a grandparent, I'm taking away your lifetime's work 
because I have moral superior judgment to you, and I'm going to save your child because I'm going to intervene and rip off all of your money. Well, it's, it's, it's essentially the same. Their money. Is it is it not the same thing as saying no? I'm not going to help you out with food or housing or other things, you know, uh, or even disaster relief because you know it's going to make you lazy and crazy. Well, but see, I mean, you, you you jump wildly. I'm not against disaster relief. Uh, for that matter, I'm it's not against money. food for people who are, who are who are needed. No, disaster relief, in fact, is a collective act of the society to overcome, for example, Katrina. Uh, I went to school, I spent three years in New Orleans going to graduate school at Tulane. And I went down and visited after Katrina, and it's clear they needed help. Communities can band together to help each other. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that if the help is temporary. But if you had turned around and said, why don't we give New Orleans money for the next 60 years, I'd have said that would be bad. First of all, it would, be, it would lead immediately to corruption. <clears throat> but it would also teach the wrong habits. So. I, I think if, if you need food, we ought to find a way for you to be able to work. Now, again, I'm not talking about people with very severe disabilities. I think that's a different challenge. And But but I think a community can apply common sense uh, and not automatically go to these kind of extreme interpretations. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's a, a new TV show out about the Clinton impeachment. I'm, I'm guessing you you might have seen it. Um, I'm, I'm curious. No, I, haven't, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't seen it. It's, 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 it's pretty fascinating. It's entirely... Uh, through the viewpoint of women, you know, Linda Tripp and Monica Lewinsky and, and Hillary Clinton, by and large. Um, I, I'm curious what it was like managing Clinton's impeachment, uh, you know, for a BJ, basically, uh, when you were in the midst of an extramarital affair yourself. Well, the impeachment, in my view, the impeachment was never about his personal behavior. That's, I mean, that was the popular press view. I think it was a big mistake by Ken Starr to focus on it. My view was very simple. Uh, Bill Clinton committed perjury, which is a felony, uh, in testifying in a case that had been brought against him by a woman who, who alleged, and I think it was an upheld, that he, in fact, as her employer, as governor of Arkansas, had coerced her into sex. Now, he lied under oath. Lying under oath is a felony. You can go to jail for it. In fact, in the end, Clinton had to give up his licensed to practice law in Arkansas and had to pay a fine. Uh, it wasn't, I mean, because I was approached by some of Clinton's friends along the line you just said, and I said, look, you know, I'm a guy who's been divorced, and I understood when I went through the divorce proceedings that if they asked me questions, for example, about how much money I had, if I lied under oath, I was, I was undermining the whole process of the justice system. Bill Clinton is a, is a Yale-educated lawyer. He understood he whether what he was doing was a fundamental violation of the system, and I think had Starr stayed focused at that level and stayed away from the sex, that in fact it was a much harder case for Clinton to defend. Yeah, it was certainly an interesting time. Um, you and and Reagan and the Bush administration, you know, during that era, uh, were pushing hard for uh, NAFTA specifically, uh, which was negotiated by the George right. W. Bush administration and then signed by Bill Clinton. Um, over the objections of uh, mostly progressive Democrats, people like Bernie Sanders, who were saying, no, wait a minute, or, you know, Ross Perot. Um, now we've got uh, this interesting thing of Josh Hawley out here saying, wait a minute, this was a terrible mistake. We should be making things in America again. And yet most of the Republican caucus is still all in on neoliberal free trade. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, I think first of all, if the choice is between building a factory in Mexico or China, I prefer Mexico. Uh, second, I think that some, in some ways we greatly underestimated what the price differential would do. Uh, there's, and there's no question, for example, with China that we have completely mismanaged that relationship to the enormous advantage of the Chinese dictatorship. Uh, so I would probably be more cautious now than I was back in the early 90s because both with China and with Mexico, I think we had an illusion about how it would work, and it did not work to our advantage the way we thought it would. Yeah, yeah, I've, it's clearly turned out that way. Last question. Um, what is it about Viktor Orban's Hungary that is so appealing to uh, conservatives and Republicans? Uh, is, is it his, his use of racism, his packing the courts, the crony capitalism, the fact that he's handed over all the media to his 
buddy oligarchs uh, putting political opponents in prison? I don't get it. Well, I, I suspect. Well, first of all, I'm not sure. I don't. I don't spend much time on Orban, so I don't. I don't know that I. Can CPAC is is holding their convention there answer. this year. In Hungary. Who is CPAC? Who's holding it? And Tucker Carlson oh, okay. just did a show for a week from 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 Budapest. So you know, it's it's a hot thing right now on your side. Um, I mean, all I all I could tell you is, uh, first of all, that I, I I don't at a time when. We have um, this whacked out idea that you can accept anybody who wants to show up from anywhere at any time with no assimilation. Uh, Orban's defense of Hungarian nationalism is not a bad thing. Uh, and uh, I think second, as somebody who deeply distrusts the Brussels bureaucracy, I kind of favor almost any leader in the, in the European Union who stands up to the bureaucrats in Brussels. So. But, but I don't I don't have enough detailed knowledge. Uh, I would also say, by the way, that I'm, I'm, an, I'm attracted by the fact that Orban took on Soros and beat him uh, because uh, I think Soros is an enormous danger uh, to democracy everywhere in the world. Soros paid for Orban to go to college. How did co uh, Orban beat Soros? I, I, what did I miss? Oh, so Soros, Soros ran a campaign to try to defeat Orban for re-election. Uh, and Orban made, made Soros the number one issue. So or, uh, Soros was funding his opponent, you're saying? You're listening to yeah, massively. Yeah, Visit interesting. Just as Soros, by the way, funds pro-criminal anti-police district attorneys all over the country. In the United and, States. I mean, Soros, Soros is a, in the United States. I mean, Soros is a very complicated, weird guy. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Larry in Los Angeles. Hey, Larry, what's up? I just wanted to point out that Newt Gingrich and uh, Joe Scarborough both voted against the 1993 omnibus bill that actually balanced the budget. Under oh, really? Yeah, I, you know, it's after I got off the air with him, I, I was thinking Bill Clinton was the one who proposed that budget, not not the Republicans. All of the Republicans in Congress, both in the House and in the Senate, voted against that bill, and it took Al Gore to break the and some Democrats did also. It took Al Gore to break the, the tie uh, so that that bill came into law. Wow. And then after, after Newt and, uh, and the Republicans tried to destroy the Clinton economy, along with Alan Greenspan, Alan Greenspan took the Fed rate from 3% to 6.5% as interest rates were falling, in, as uh, inflation was falling from 3 to 2%, below Alan Greenspan's minimum threshold. So he actually violated his own regulations and jumped the Fed rate up to six and a half percent. The highest has ever been, uh, even at the highest it was, it was since George H.W. Bush was president, and, it, and it's never gotten higher since then. Yeah, you'll recall. Bill Clinton had the highest. I'm, I'm sorry. Pardon? Fin finish your thought. And so, and then what happened after that is um, Newt Gingrich and Alan Greenspan, as they were attacking Bill Clinton's uh, economy, Bill Clinton made a mistake, in my view. He did the same thing that uh, that Jimmy Carter did. He lowered the capital gains taxes on the rich. Right. And when Jimmy Carter did that, he got a recession out of it. When every president does that, they get a recession out of it. And yeah. when Bill Clinton did it, his economy was so strong, it didn't quite get us into the recession area. But it started. Uh, the economy started slowing down because, number one, Alan Greenspan had the Fed rate up at 6.5%. And then when Bush finally did get office, he cut taxes again on the rich, and that combination of the um, of um, Bill Clinton's lowering the taxes on the rich and George Bush lowering the taxes on the rich is what caused the, the 2001 recession. Yeah, and it's well, and, and, so, so, and also the deregulation of the banks. <laughs> but, oh no, no that, actually, that, that was 2008, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that had nothing to do with. It. In yeah. fact, uh, we we normally had, we didn't have these big drops generally when Republicans are president, mm -hmm. and and. You have to understand that Alan Greenspan engineered that recession. He tried to get it timed for when Bill Clinton was president, mm -hmm. and when he took the Fed rate up to 6.5%. No right. economy could stand those rate hikes. 
They did the same thing to Jimmy Carter, except they took it all the way up to 20 percent and cost. And that was also a contributing factor in in Jimmy Carter's recession. It basically takes two governmental um, policy changes to give us a recession. One of them is improper interest rates, either higher or lower. And the other one is cutting taxes on the rich. You do that. You get those two things combinations going and you will get a recession every time. I've looked at the history. It happens every time. I believe you, Larry. Larry, you should be writing this stuff, you know. You got to start a blog over at medium.com or Substack or something because you you are so on top of all this stuff. I tremendously respect your scholarship. Larry, thank you. Thank you so much for the call. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. One last story here that I wanted to share with you, and I think it's, it's a story of some consequence. There's a fascinating piece in the New York Times about Xi Jinping, the current president of the Chinese Communist Party of China and head of the Chinese Communist Party. And and the principal focus of the story is how Xi is basically making sure that the history books and all the events and things in China, you know, it's the idea that he who controls the past controls the future, that the history books put him in the pantheon of great 20 and 21st century leaders along with Mao Zedong and Deng, Deng Xiaoping, as the kind of the three major leaders. And, you know, I get that, and I think that that's, you know, this is the kind of stuff that happens in countries, particularly countries that are essentially autocracies. But what I found particularly fascinating, and it was buried in the middle of this story, was this paragraph in the New York Times, in the coming years, Mr. Xi's priorities are focused on reducing wealth inequalities through a program of quote, common prosperity, end quote, lessening China's reliance on imported technology and continuing to modernize its military to prepare for potential conflict. Now, the top story over on Drudge is how they're building targets for their jet planes to attack in the deserts of China that are shaped identical to U.S. aircraft carriers, which is like a little distressing. But I think the larger issue here is that China is now saying, okay, we became the world's factory floor. We became the manufacturing center for the planet. In the 19, starting in the mid-1980s, uh, with the experiment that they did in the, in the, in the territories outside of Hong Kong, and, uh, and then you know, took it national when it worked well, they completely rejected neoliberalism and embraced Alexander Hamilton's American plan. We became the world's manufacturing floor. And now we are going to provide everything that we need to ourselves. And this is what countries do as they prepare for conflict in some cases. And this is not to say that I think that we're going to be in a war with China. I certainly hope we're not. And I think, you know, our, our two forms of government can coexist peacefully, although, you know, there's that flashpoint of, of Taiwan. But the larger point is that China gets it. China has figured out something that 
America just went stupid on during the Reagan administration and then the George Herbert Walker Bush administration, Reagan and Bush, as part of the neoliberal Reaganism or trickle-down economics or whatever you want to call it, um, economic theories that they were pursuing, they rejected Alexander Hamilton's plan, his protectionist plan, his 11-point plan, is called the American Plan, which had protected American industry literally from 1793 until 1981. They rejected this. This is what made America the richest country in the world. They rejected it and said, no, we're going to let our American companies start manufacturing things overseas because we want to screw the unions. To hell with American labor. And they did it. We've lost 60,000 factories, over 10 million manufacturing jobs, and many of them went to China. Now, China is now saying to themselves, essentially, we're not going to do that same stupid thing that Reagan and Bush did. We're going to be, we're going to be uh, manufacturing our own goods. So if America ever cuts us off, we'll be fine. But just imagine for a minute what would happen if China cut us off. What would happen if, if three quarters of the things for sale on Amazon and pretty much everything in Walmart suddenly vanished? How do you think that would play out? Okay, so uh, number one, trade. What do you think? Uh, am I crazy here? I, I wrote a book in 2010 called Rebooting the American Dream, 11 Steps to, to Rebuild the American Middle Class or something like, the subtitle is something like that, I'm sorry. Don't have it right on the tip of my tongue here, but Rebooting the American Dream was the book. And Bernie read from that book when he did his filibuster in 2010. And he also sent a letter to 99 other senators and we attached a copy of the book to it and passed them out to all the other senators saying, hey, read this book. And the, whole, the introduction and the whole first chapter were about ending free trade. So, you know, I, I, I've been saying this for a decade now. Well, I, I've been saying it for longer than that, but in print, 11 years now. And, you know, as has Bernie. So do you, do you think I'm crazy here? You know, let me know. Uh, the other point I wanted to share with you is this, uh, you know, rather startling story that is in uh, David Sirota's newsletter, The Daily Poster. Dailyposter.com is the website. The headline, Pharma Front Group has spent $1.2 million backing Kirsten Cinema. And he notes that there's this group, it's called Center Forward. Uh, I'm, I'll just read from his, uh, his piece here. A dark money group funded by drug makers is blanketing the Arizona airwaves to build up support for Democratic Senator Kirsten Cinema, who just helped gut Democrats' drug pricing plan. Center Forward, David Sirota writes, which has long been bankrolled by the powerful drug lobby Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers Association, Pharma, has spent roughly $1.2 million to promote cinema in Arizona just since September, according to data from Ad Impact. It's amazing. It's just absolutely amazing. There's a whole brand new round of TV, uh, TV ads talking about how wonderful Kirsten Cinema is and, you know, she's great. And, in Arizona, we know working together moves us forward, says the ad. So does Kirsten Cinema. She's an independent, effective voice for our state, always putting Arizona first. Right. Turns out that uh, two board members of this group, Center Forward, Libby Greer and Cindy Brown of Forbes Tate Partners, represent Pharma. I'm reading from David Sirota's piece, a lobbying powerhouse for pharmaceutical interests that raised more than 525 million bucks in 2019. They also lobby for individual drug companies. Pharma donated four and a half million to Center Forward between 2016 and 2019. And Center Forward started airing pro-cinema ads in September, just days before she became the chief public opponent of Democrats' drug negotiation plans. Even though she ran on negotiating Medicare drug prices. Well, we know her price now, 1.2 million bucks. At least so far, and we don't know how much has actually gone into her packs and super packs and leadership packs and pockets and things, so probably several million, but we know 1.2 for sure.
Hi, it's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. We're reading today from Rebooting the American Dream, from the introduction. Uh, It's titled Back to the Future. On April 14th, 1789, George Washington was out walking through the fields at Mount Vernon, his home in Virginia, when Charles Thompson, the Secretary of the Continental Congress, rode up on horseback. Thompson had a letter for Washington from the President Pro Tem of the new constitutionally created United States Senate telling Washington that he'd just been elected president. And the inauguration was set for April 30th in the nation's capital, New York City. This created two problems for George Washington. The first was saying goodbye to his 82-year-old mother, which the 57-year-old Washington did that night. She gave him her blessing and told him it was the last time he'd see her alive as she was gravely ill. And indeed, she died before he returned from New York. The second problem was finding a suit of clothes made in the United States of America. For that, he sent a courier to his old friend and fellow general from the American Revolutionary War, Henry Knox. Washington couldn't find a suit made in America because in the years prior to the American Revolution, the British East India Company, whose tea was thrown into the Boston Harbor by outraged colonists after the Tea Act of 1773, gave the world's largest transnational corporation a giant tax break. But the British East India Tea Company controlled the manufacture and the transportation of a whole range of goods, including fine clothing. Cotton and wool could be grown and sheared in the colonies, but it had to be sent to England to be turned into clothing. This was a routine policy for England, and it's why until India achieved its independence in 1947, Mahatma Gandhi, who was assassinated a year later, sat at his spinning wheel for his lectures and daily spun clothing in his own home. It was, like his salt march, a protest against the colonial practices of England and an entreaty to his fellow Indians to make their own clothes to gain independence from British companies and institutions, even though making their own clothes or making their own salt was against British law. Fortunately for George Washington, an American clothing company had been established on April 28, 1783 in Hartford, Connecticut, by a man named Daniel Hinsdale. And it produced high-quality woolen and cotton clothing, as well as items made from imported silk. It was to Hinsdale's company that Knox turned, and he helped Washington get, in time for his inauguration two weeks later, a nice, but not excessively elegant, brown American-made suit. He wore British black later for the celebration and the most famous painting, but he was sworn in wearing an American-made suit. When Washington became president in 1789, most of America's personal and industrial products of any significance were manufactured in England or in other British colonies. Washington asked his Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton, what could be done about that, and Hamilton came up with an 11-point plan to foster American manufacturing which he presented to Congress in 1791. By 1793, most of its points had either been made into law by Congress or formulated into policy by either President Washington or the various states, which put our country on a path of developing its industrial base and generating the largest source of federal revenue for more than 100 years. Those strategic proposals built the greatest industrial powerhouse the world had ever seen. And after more than 200 successful years, Alexander Hamilton's program was only abandoned during the administrations of Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and Bill Clinton, and remained abandoned to this day. Modern-day China, however, implemented most of Hamilton's plan uh, just in the 1990s and has brought about a remarkable transformation of its nation in a single generation. Hamilton's 11-point plan for American manufacturers is a primary inspiration for this book, It was part of a larger work titled Alexander Hamilton's Report on the Subject of Manufacturers Made in His Capacity as Secretary of the Treasury. It's the official title. And then I I list Hamilton's 11-point plan for American manufacturers. And I'll share just the headlines of this. He starts out by saying, a full view now having been taken of the inducements to the promotion of manufacturers in the United States. In other words, why we should do this. Accompanied with an examination of the principal objections, which are commonly urged in opposition. This was... Jefferson's objection that he didn't want America to be a manufacturing nation. He wanted us to be an agricultural nation. Hamilton says, it is proper in the next place to consider the means by which it may be affected. So here he says, in order to, for a, to a better judgment of the means proper to be re- presented to the United States, it will be of use to advert to those which have been employed with success in other countries. In other words, we're stealing this idea from England. It was called the Tudor Plan when King Henry VII came up with it. So number one, protecting duties, import taxes, now called tariffs, or duties on those foreign articles which are the rivals of domestic ones intended to be encouraged. So number one, 
raise the cost of imported goods. Number two, prohibition of rival articles or duties equivalent to prohibitions. On some things that we think it's really important to make in America, make the duties, the, the tariffs, so high that nobody would want to import them. So there'll be a strong domestic manufacturing presence. Three, prohibitions on the exportation of materials of manufacture. Why provide raw materials to other countries, like we're doing right now to China, to make stuff to sell back to us when we can simply make it here, manufacture it here? Number four, pecuniary bounties. This is one, one of the most efficacious means of encouraging manufacturers, basically you know, subsidizing growing and new nascent industries. So that's just up to number four. There are 11 points. The rest of it's all in the book, Rebooting the American Dream. And you can find it online. Albert in Big Sandy, Texas, looks to me like you're going to toss out the main kind of Bill Clinton, as it were, talking point in favor of free trade. Go for it. If you think about it, free trade uplifted over, I was thinking millions, but the more I thought about it, it's got to be over a billion people out of abject, extreme poverty. And if you also think about it, that half the world's population is in Southeast Asia. And that's where the new customer is going to be, the new court, the new business is going to. They will become the center of the world, I believe, the economic world in 25, 50 years. Oh, I think they will be in the next five years. But it wasn't free trade that built the Chinese middle class. The Chinese middle class, by the way, is now larger than the population of the entire United States. Meanwhile, the American middle class has gone from being 65% of us when Reagan came into office to being around 47% of us now. But it wasn't free trade that built the Chinese middle class. It was Alexander Hamilton's American plan. Xi Jinping, well, actually it was Deng, Deng Xiaoping back in the 80s made the decision. He had, I just finished writing the chapter about this for my book on neoliberalism. He had two competing advisors speaking to him. One group of advisors was saying, you need to try this neoliberal thing. You need to try this free trade thing. Just open the borders, do away with tariffs, do away with import and export controls, and just, you know, let the whole free market thing work. And just like they did in Russia, right? In other words, privatize all the state industries, do shock therapy just like Russia. So he had one group of advisors telling him to do that. And then he had another group of advisors saying, no, you need to do what Alexander Hamilton did in the United States in 1793 with his American plan. And you need to make it very difficult for American products to be imported into China, finished products, but make it very easy for American raw materials to be imported into China. So we can bring in their raw materials and then make it very easy to export goods to the United States while you're making it hard to import goods from the United States. So we send them raw materials like iron ore and coal. They turn it into computers and, and washing machines, and then they ship them back to us and we buy them. That is not free trade. That is Alexander Hamilton's American plan being done by the Chinese. It's the opposite of free trade. It's regulated trade. And that's what made China as wealthy as the exact same program made the United States wealthy. It was the program that Henry V did back in the, in the 16th century. It was called the Tudor Plan. It raised England from being mud huts, uh, you know, mud, well, mud I, roads and thatched huts to being an industrial power. Well, now, Tom, yeah. I, I understand that, except for this. It did, the corporation, the U.S. corporations, the ones who sent the factories overseas. Sure. It was because them. they could. Because, yeah, because we changed the rules of the game. We used right, to protect domestic manufacturing. We stopped doing that in the 1980s under Reagan, and we stopped doing it in a big way in the 1990s after signing NAFTA. And then Clinton also signed into existence the World Trade Organization. And then I believe it was Clinton, it might have been George W. Bush, brought China into the WTO. And that was kind of the end of the show, right? That was, at that point, the die was completely cast. China became the new world trade power rather than us. Free trade has destroyed America. Regulated trade built China. And, you know, and that's how it works. Albert, thanks for the call. Mark in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Hey, quick question. Do they give good tax breaks for corporations for their, what they pay their workers? 
Uh, wages are 100% tax deductible, always have been, probably always will be, uh, up to a limit. You can deduct 100% of wage of a wage up to a million dollars a year. Beyond that, it, it becomes taxable to a corporation. So, you know, wages have always been a tax deduction. Okay. I was going to say, because wouldn't that be a quick way to get people back to work is maybe give them a little bit better of a tax break and let them... You got 45 of the 100 most profitable companies in America paid no taxes at all last year, no income taxes at all last year, and yet they they generated something like a trillion dollars, you know, or more of economic activity. So, no, giving tax breaks to corporations does not cause them to pay people more outside of their senior executives and their CEOs. That's that's the that's all it does. Thanks a lot for the call, Carlson in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hey, Carlson, what's up? Hey, I. I think that the problem in America is that we don't do what the U.S. preamble says that we should do. It starts off saying that we should unify, and it ends by saying that you have liberty. So we create our liberty and freedom through unity first. And it's a great friend. It, it seems like today everyone's crying about I need to be I need to have my freedom. I have to need my liberty, and I can do anything I want to do and how I want to do it. But our mission statement, which is the preamble, says that we need to have a more perfect union. Right, and provide for the general that. welfare. Yeah, and so I, I just want to make that comment. And as an example, here's, here's an example. Why do we have inflation today? Why is it going out of control? I think that the pandemic gave us an example. Remember when it started and we had all of the, how expensive it was to get everything? Mm-hmm. And that's because, like you said, you know, you just let the free market work, which is, which is not a competitive free market. We had to intervene. The same thing's happening right now. We're exporting 20% of our natural gas, 40% of our oil. If we just did the unity thing, which is America first, not the impractical way that it's been done historically in the fastest way, but America first in terms of keeping our oil and gas exports back as a strategic priority to save our economy, oil prices would be like $18 a barrel. Which is, which is by the way, something like, that, that Obama was, was actually working on. I mean, I think it was during the Obama administration that the United States, for the first time in its history, became energy independent. You know, although, as you correctly point out, we're still exporting, or particularly exporting refined products. We are taking really, really dirty coal tar crap, you know, this coal tar from Canada, pumping it through a pipeline all the way down to the Gulf Coast, all the way down to Texas, refining it there and pulling out all the poisons and pollutants in it and dumping them into the air so that they go downwind and, and create Cancer Alley in southeast Texas and across Louisiana. And then we are exporting the refined petroleum products. The reason that we get them all the way to Texas is so we can export them to South America and China. Yeah. And it's crazy. We get the pollution. Somebody else gets it. Yeah, I'm with you. And, and, and you know, Trump, of course, took that word, uh, America first, uh, unfortunately. But, yeah, I'm in favor of a policy that puts our country yeah. first. I think, and I think that's the obligation of every country. But insidious thing, though, oil and natural gas, it, it's, it's in everything. You know, it's in our plastics, oh, yeah. I mean, every, just about every, in our home construction. So if we did not export oil and gas for strategic purposes, we could cut in half, we can cut our cost by three quarters. Well, I, I don't know how it would affect the world price. And, and basically, you know, we all dance to the tune of the world price, which is no, no, somewhat no, set by supply and demand, but it's also somewhat we, set by OPEC. No, no, that's what I'm saying. It wouldn't, as, as an example, before we started exporting natural gas, like about six or seven years ago, mm-hmm. our natural gas prices were always 50% lower than the world price. Uh-huh. It's only when we start exporting, like our natural gas and our oil, because previously we couldn't export yeah. crude oil. No, I, I get that it. Carlson, reduced- I can't confirm your numbers, and I'm always wary of, you know, just saluting a you know a, a, a number or a position put forward by a caller who I don't know but it makes sense and you may well be right and I need to do some research on that but thanks for that that's that was that was a, a great rant Don in Sheridan Iowa hey Don what's up 
Yeah, hi, Tom. Uh, thanks for talking to me. What I want to know is they keep talking about bringing all these jobs back, and we're experiencing have been the same thing that China had when they went from their one child to numerous child because they didn't have the workforce. I mean, I know a lot of people that don't have kids. If they have, they have one, two at the most. Right, and that's why you encourage immigration. <laughs> but the American population yeah, but is we growing. Don't want. It's growing. Yeah, they don't want. They don't want immigration, but they don't. Want, you know, who's going to pick the, the lettuce and all that? Yeah, I, I have no doubt, John. That, that and thank you for the call. I have no doubt that. If these jobs come home, if we start making things in America, which is, by the way, the only way that you can build the wealth of a nation is manufacturing. If we start making things in America again and people pay a decent wage, there will be lots of people looking for those jobs. And Bernie Sanders knows it and Josh Hawley is proclaiming it, which should scare the hell out of every Democrat in America. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 